Well, welcome everyone to season seven of CoreCast, the podcast of the Northern California chapter. We're so excited to be back with you for this seventh season. My name is Robert Teed, and I am thrilled to be back as your regular host. And I hope to be with you for all of season seven. Uh, we've got a great season planned for you. We've got a great lineup of topics and guests across roughly nine or 10 episodes that we intend to drop monthly, usually associated with the uh, Cornet NorCal chapter meetings, but, but not always. Uh, we're bringing you guests and content that are both timely and relevant to what's happening in the world of work and workplace with a particular focus on the Northern California region, which we all know is home to some of the most exciting companies and work and workplace developments on the planet. When I'm not hosting CoreCast, my day job is as founder and CEO of Integra Group, where I'm an executive coach, a strategic advisor, and a consultant. And I bring to my work three decades as a corporate real estate and workplace executive. If you wanna connect with me or you're interested in learning more about me and my work, you can find my info in the show notes. I'm also a longtime active member of the Cornet Northern California chapter. I'm a facilitator in the chapter's leadership development cohort. And of course, I get the privilege of hosting CoreCast. For episode one of season seven, we brought back a guest that we had with us in February of 23 uh, as part of the Women of Cornet program. And we're just so excited to have her back and we can't wait to get her in front of you. So without further ado, on with the show. All right. Well, today on CoreCast, we are super fortunate to have as our guest, Jackie Cummings-Koski. Um, I'm just super excited Jackie's here. Uh, Jackie's a financial literacy expert. She's the founder of Money Letters LLC. And some of you listening may have attended Jackie's talk back in February of this year for our Women of Cornet community. Um, but if you didn't hear her there, you very well may have heard her on any number of media platforms, things like the Rachel Ray show or CNBC's closing bell, or you may have read some of the pieces that feature her in Forbes and in people magazine. Uh, and she's also got several great uh, YouTube pieces about her and her work. And in other words, sort of Jackie's everywhere. Uh, Jackie's a certified financial planner professional. So a CFP, uh, she holds a master's of science in personal financial planning from Kansas state university. And she's an accredited financial counselor. Um, Jackie's also the author of the award-winning book, Money Letters to My Daughter, where she teaches a number of really important money lessons to her daughter, Amber, by way of letters that she's written to her in, in which she's shared some of her real-life lessons about money and, and personal finances. Great book. Highly recommend it, especially for those of us with you know, kids that, and, and young adults that we're trying to teach more about money and personal finance. Um, Jackie's also on the board of Better Investing, and she's on the board of financial the Financial Planners Association for the Southwestern Ohio chapter. Um, and what I've come to appreciate about Jackie's work, and I and I think you will too, is that she teaches us these really important topics and lessons about money and and personal finance all of which are relevant to everybody, but she does it in a way that sort of breaks through some of the taboos around money and, and uh, personal finance. And she does it with humor and with warmth in a way that makes these topics much more approachable, um, less academic, less jargony, 
you know, things that really create a place where we can talk about these things. So Jackie, welcome to CoreCast. Thank you so much for being here and for coming back to Cornet Northern California. Robert, thank you so much for having me. I am excited for this conversation. And thank you for all the references around financial literacy. That's how it all starts. Awesome. Well, help me here. What did I miss in my introduction of you? You know, you've done so much. You've got such a great body of work. What did I miss? What would you like to add? What would you like to highlight? Well, I think the main thing I'd like to highlight is that in the beginning, it's just learning the basics of personal finance. So that financial literacy early on and none of the other things that I did would have happened had I not created or sought out uh, a baseline of knowledge to learn about money because like most people, I didn't learn about it growing up. So just those basic nuggets of money and personal finance and understanding how it works that's going to go really far. And you just build on it, you know, from the beginning. And that's basically what I did. I love that. I, and I'd love for you to share a little bit about that backstory. For those here that might not be familiar with your work, you know, you do, ha you have built this amazing body of expertise. You built this really powerful brand, but all of that seems to have come from that personal journey and your learnings that you just touched on. So I'd love for you to, to share with our listeners a little bit of that background, a little bit of that journey, uh, and really, you know, sort of what brought you to this path that you're on to teach about money and personal finance. Yeah, well, I grew up in poverty. Uh, there's no other way to put it. Uh, I was raised by a single dad with six kids. I was mm. number five out of six. I have no idea how he did that because I have one and could barely, barely do it, but he did it. And he worked so hard and it it helped me to realize that you don't have to be wealthy to have good money habits, even though we didn't have a lot. Like his work ethic, that will always stay with me. Uh, he was debt averse. So I didn't have a crazy amount of debt like a lot of my uh, counterparts did. So growing up in poverty, you know, you're going without a lot. Everything's very scarce. Uh, the reason for not doing things is because we don't have the money. We don't have the money. So the one thing that did stick with me was that I didn't want to be poor when I grew up mm. and when I had a family. So that that resonated in my head again and again. And I, by the time I was ready to graduate from college, um, my dad was diagnosed with cancer about three months before I graduated. Graduated from high school, not college. So he passed away in March of the year that I graduated. I graduated in May and he never got to see me graduate. And so I had to learn a quick lesson when I was very young. I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know, I was so young. I didn't even really know how to deal with it. But one thing that I knew was that going to college, that was one way to keep me from or to help me get a good job, you know, to get a good salary and hopefully never, ever be in poverty again. So went through college. Um, I did graduate. I didn't do so well because I was working full time the entire time, sometimes two jobs. And I was also taking a full load of classes at school, which was uh, probably not doable, but somehow I did uh, barely scrape through. And once I got out of college, I was just so glad to get this you know, good job, you know, that required a college degree. At the time, I felt like it was a, a great salary. And 
I continued on. I ended up getting married and having my daughter. I have one daughter, as you mentioned, her name is Amber. And we're a big, happy family for about 12 years. And I ended up getting a divorce. So that put me in a tailspin and made me feel like, oh, I don't want to ever be in poverty again. Am I going to be okay? Is my daughter going to be okay? So all those things ringing in my head. And I would say it probably took a couple of years for me to sort of um, get to a space mentally where I was ready to do something about these thoughts. So I knew that I had to figure out a way to make sure I was going to be okay. My daughter was going to be okay. And that all pointed to finances. And those were my early beginnings of, okay, where do I start? How do I start learning about money? And that, that's what I consider the beginning. So is it fair to say that all sort of then manifests in this, this dream that you have to create sort of a financially literate society? Is that kind of where that all comes from, that backstory and, and that yes. journey you were on? Yes, it does. Because um, one of the first things I did is that I joined an investment club. And I, right after I got divorced, I had to think about, okay, what do I like to do? What am I curious about? Mm. And one of those things was I wanted to learn about the stock market because I was fearful of the stock market. But by joining this investment club, it was supported by a nonprofit organization called Better Investing. And you could go to the meetings and just observe. And that's all I wanted to do because I definitely didn't feel smart enough to be you know, in this type of environment. But I learned so much. These people were interested in the same thing that I was. I considered them all to be smarter than me. So that was the beginning of not being afraid of the stock market to understand compound growth and that you have to invest your money in order to get it to grow. You can't save your way to wealth. So at this time, all these knowledge bombs are going off, right? Mm. I'm thinking, oh, I should be maxing out my 401k and, oh, I should be putting money in my Roth and investing it there. And then I had a health savings account that I could invest in. So this turned out to be a really good time to start learning all about the stock market because this was around 2008. Mm. And so as I'm doing all of these things, maxing out these accounts, investing, starting to feel pretty comfortable or at least not afraid to put my money to work. And so I did that for probably a good 10 or 12 years till I got to the point where I discovered, you know what, I, it looks like this is working. And I think I was doing better than average because I was to the point where I could actually leave my corporate job and do what I really loved. And that was, you know, learning about finances myself. That was the key. That was the key to everything. And I'm thinking, how many other people, if they were to learn what I learned, would actually be okay regardless of where they started? Mm -hmm. So that was the thing that made me, it, it just made me happy to teach other people about this, especially my daughter, of course. Started with her and just discovered there's a whole lot more people that could learn about their finances. And I wasn't the only one. So I needed to share what I had learned. And you've got an, you've got a platform to share, um, and you know, you, you can touch people one on many in the, in the work that you do. But when you think about like, you know, high school and, and things like that, kind of where are we in teaching young people th that financial literacy? Like, where are we in that process? Cause it, it, I have 
two kids that have graduated from high school, public school in California, and I feel like they come out without this strong foundation of money and personal finance. Um, so I'm just curious, kind of where are we in that journey from from your perspective in in teaching younger people about it? Yeah, I think high school is a critical point to start. And honestly, kids are pretty smart and they could start probably a lot sooner. But I'm a huge financial literacy advocate as young as possible. And so a lot of parents think that personal finance is taught in high schools. In some high schools it is, but there is only 17 states that require personal finance in order to graduate, a standalone course. So there's 17 now, and I'd like to see it be all 50. Now, California is not currently one of those states. So if you live in California, you know, this is something that you might be able to help with to make sure that California may be the next state. The, the majority of states that require it, they're on the eastern part of the U.S. Oddly enough, I don't know if there's any anything to that, but in the last year, I can say that there has been a tremendous pace of states signing into law this requirement to have a personal finance course required uh, in order for high school students to graduate. So I'm encouraged. Uh, we're going in the right direction. We're picking up the pace. And I'm, I'm just a huge advocate. And I talk about it pretty much every presentation that I do in front of mm -hmm. any group. I start with that. Here's what states require personal finance in, in order to graduate. It's not uh, all 50 states. And, and I usually will ask the question, like, how many states do you think? And no one ever gets it right. So mm -hmm. I want to make sure that we have a clear understanding that not all 50 states require this personal finance in high school. All right, listeners, I heard a call to action from Jackie. For those of us in California, let's start advocating for that. Yeah, I would have I would have guessed the number to be a lot different than than what you said. So, yeah, and I and I love that, you know, sort of let's focus, let's let's get kids as early as possible thinking about this. Um I do have a question for you sort of relative to some of the things that are in the news and media and and obviously this creeps into, you know, what kids see and learn and hear as well. You know, we've we've got um you know, this particular moment in time we've had, the, the financial systems that we've come to rely on and some of the instruments and devices are kind of on the news every day right now. We've had a couple of, we have three banks that have sort of imploded and some that are on the brink. Yeah. Um, and I'm just curious, like that, when when kids are learning about the financial system in that way, I have to imagine that they don't know what to think about it or, and it probably creates this great opportunity for parents to share, but I'm guessing that a lot of parents don't actually know exactly what it means and what it doesn't mean. So I'm just curious as you think about kind of what's happening right now relative to, you know, financial systems and, and these these bank challenges that we're seeing, like, what advice would you give parents and how to understand that better and certainly how to share it with with their kids uh, and, and others? Yeah, what's going on now and the headlines, it is so scary for parents and, and kids alike. And it could be a great conversation starter, right? Even a teachable moment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't live in California, but everybody has heard about, you know, um, SVB. Mm -hmm. And so it's a good opportunity to do a little bit of digging. The, the one good advantage we have today, as opposed to 20 years ago, is Technology is everywhere. Information is everywhere. It's very accessible. Mm 
So, you know, in terms of what's happened with some of these banks, if you start to peel back the onion, um, there's some good um, information or good things that you can talk about. Things like, okay, the FDIC was insurance for these banks. Mm-hmm. And if you have less than $250,000, it's covered through this insurance. So that's good. You know, kids that see every anytime they ever saw a bank, they see FDIC insured. So how mm-hmm. about explain what that is? But I think the big overarching thing for parents and kids is that you do want to try to be in a position where you're preparing for the worst. The worst will happen. Now, in good times, nobody thinks about that. And I think back to 2008. And that was a scary time, arguably scarier than what we're seeing today, because everything like blew up, um, everything from real, the real estate market, banks, there's banks that went best, Bear Stearns went under. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was an awful time. And I think, you know, for me at the time, I'm just learning and I probably didn't know enough to be scared, but I, that's when I started investing and learning about the stock market. And when I look back, I see that that was probably the greatest time for me to start. But what it taught me is to be vigilant uh, vigilant, and to think about what's the worst case scenario? How am I going to be in the best position if everything goes wrong? I mean, I don't want to be, you know, one of those people worried about every little thing, but you know, let's say something as simple as an emergency fund. You know, some people might say, geez, I never used my emergency fund. Well, that's great. But there's times where you might need it and rainy days always come. So I feel like if if you could bottle how you feel today when you see these headlines, people are losing their jobs, their livelihood is, is at stake. If you could bottle up those feelings, it sometimes can be the motivation to, you know, get things going in the right direction. Uh, Because I mentioned, you know, the fact that I didn't want to be in poverty again, man, Mm -hmm. that was a powerful motivator for me. Yeah. And I love the way you just explained that. And maybe it takes us a little bit towards where you've landed in, you know, your own financial independence today, because I'm assuming this planning for worst case must have been kind of part of of your thinking and approach. And and you talk a lot today about financial independence and retiring early or the, the acronym FIRE. And, you know, that's a journey you took uh, yourself and, and you were able to retire financially independent a few years ago at the age of 49. Um, and I'm just curious, like, why, when you think about that now, and, I, and I've read a number of pieces about you and that journey and watched a couple of YouTubes, so I know there's a l- level of importance uh, of that to you, that ability to achieve that financial independence uh, and, and you know, be able to retire at this age. I'd love for you to share a little bit about that. And then as you were just thinking uh, and talking about like planning for the worst, how did that fit into your um, planning for this financial independence that you were able to achieve? Yeah, well, like you mentioned, uh, financial independence is, um, or FIRE is uh, financial independence retiring early. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's kind of just a new name, if you think about it, because I remember my dad, you know, going back to the, the lessons I learned from my dad is that, you know, you want to live on less than you earn. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of what financial independence is about, you know, and whatever the difference is, you invest it and you you grow 
the difference. And so for me, it was, it becomes a very psychological thing, right? So I wanted to be in a position where I could do what I love. And I knew, you know, my job was so different. It had nothing to do with financial education or financial literacy. So it wasn't viable for me to have my career mm-hmm. or the current career and be able to do the financial literacy work that I knew was so critical and so important to me. So again, seeking that education and being curious, I'm like, is there any way I could do this? Mm-hmm. And so as I'm looking and I'm doing the math and I'm like getting more comfortable with it, um, I figured out, you know, there is a way that I can step away, not feel like I was going to be in poverty again. Mm-hmm. And, and we're back to, I'm thinking about the worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. So my assumptions as I'm doing this math and, and, you know, for financial independence, basically if you do, uh, if you take 25 times your expenses, not your income, but your expenses, that's pretty much your number. That's just high level. But I got to that number. And I still wasn't ready to retire. Like, mm-hmm. like mentally, I had to prepare and make sure that I was going to be okay. And maybe other people felt, you know, would feel more comfortable. You know, maybe they grew up around entrepreneurs and they knew they could, you know, run their own business. But my assumptions, my worst case assumptions was that I would have no additional money coming in and I would mm-hmm. live off of my investments. So I continued working for about two more years to get to um, I guess to give me the level of cushion that I felt like I needed to mm-hmm. be okay. And that freed me up to really design things the way I wanted to. Like, for instance, I'm very transparent about my numbers mm-hmm. and because I know that that can help so many people. And it doesn't have to be just like mine, but they can make adjustments, which is what I did. I loved when people talk specifically about numbers. So I like being able to design it the way that I think it should be done without worrying about failing because I've had plenty of failures, mm-hmm. but it's just so freeing to be to the point where I didn't have to depend on the paycheck. I knew that I wasn't going to be thrown into poverty again because I was you know, setting myself up probably excessively mm-hmm. um, than I needed to, but now I get to do what I love and I'll, I'll never retire from that. So yeah, that mental part is so powerful. Yeah. And I, I love that. I, I can, um, I have a similar journey. So I, I was able to retire, uh, partially retire in, in mid 2021 following kind of fire, fire principles as well. And I, and All right. doing, yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> I'm doing things I love and I will always do these things I love. So I can, I can definitely, you know, your journey sort of resonates with me on, on how you got there, how you looked at the numbers. Um, that sort of psychology of it for sure, because it, it, it's a big decision. But, you know, like you've said, if you if you if you have it, if you do it in a way that sort of makes a lot of sense for you and you can get the psychology of it right, I think that's so important um, yeah. in, in, in us arriving here. And so it sounds like as you think about financial independence, whether it's retiring early, but just getting to that point of financial independence, it I'm guessing for you, that's important for most people to understand and appreciate in in their own financial journey. Is, is that fair? Yeah, it is. And you do have to do a little soul searching and think about what is important to you? Like what legacy do you want to leave? And, and I think a lot about my daughter. Um, it was mm-hmm. great that I was able to retire early, but she was my biggest cheerleader. And some of the conversations we had was so good. And I was really glad that I was able to 
provide that type of example. Um, and I think it's going to serve her well and hopefully generations in the future that this type of thinking and this type of approach to life will get extended uh, for a long time. Yeah. I, and I love that. I, I want, I really want my kids in the same way to, to have some level of independence and, and be able to make really good decisions and frankly, to be able to do work they love. So I love the way you just, yeah. you just talked on that. You know, we're going to switch gears here in just a second, but I, what else about your journey about, um, you know, your, your story, would you like to share with our listeners that we didn't touch on? Well, I think we did a pretty good job of touching on the really big things because a lot of times, you know, fire or financial independence, people get bogged down in the numbers mm -hmm. and, you know, being, you know, frugalist and things like that. So I think the psychological side is so important and there's hardly any action that's going to happen without you having the mental capacity to move to that next step. And uh, when you were mentioning about, you know, um, you know, I did go back to, to get my master's. I did that after I uh, mm -hmm. retired from my corporate job. But one of the big pieces of that master's degree was financial therapy. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I took that and, and yeah, it's an emerging field and it was a, a unique program at Kansas State University. And I knew I didn't want to go back and go back to school for just like, you know, something I wasn't interested in or something that didn't excite me. But when I saw this program, it was pretty amazing because I always knew there was a very strong connection between money and psychology mm -hmm. and behavior and money. So that is a really important piece that I just want to stress because I think that made all the difference for me. Yeah. And it sort of it brings me to this question I want to ask you. It's kind of a regionally based question. So. A lot of our listeners are based in Northern California and they're in the Bay Area in particular. And many are in tech or have tech as clients or they may be invested in tech. You know, some somehow they're tech or tech adjacent. And, you know, it's a it's a pretty common uh, thing in the Bay Area to be somehow involved and invested in tech. Um, and I've been here my whole life. I've come to sort of think of the Bay Area as this kind of wild and weird place when it comes to <laughs> money in personal finance. And because as a region, you know, we we have tremendous wealth in the region and wealth creation capacity, but we also have severe wealth disparity. Um, and we've got, you know, a massive number of unhoused and we have huge housing affordability and availability issues. And so it, it's frankly, it's hard for some of our teachers and our public servants and service workers to to live in the cities in which they work. And so that's that wealth disparity that we have. So we can create a massive amounts of wealth. And then we've got this massive disparity that happens. And we also have, because of the tech, we have, you know, this, this exposure to the ups and downs of tech and tech investments and tech stocks and IPOs and ESPPs. And so it can be really volatile here, both regionally from an economic perspective, but also individually, because so many people are involved in, you know, investing in, in tech, whether they work there or somehow they're adjacent to it. And then right now we're in this kind of interesting moment where a lot of the tech firms have started to reduce headcount and lay people off. And so we've got, you know, what I would sort of view as this kind of real volatile regional impact um, for people that live here, both kind of, again, at that uh, more the macro level, but also at the individual level. So my question is really like when you would advise people, individuals, 
how do you help them kind of stay above the fray of all those external financial dynamics that might be happening in a place like the Bay Area um, and, and get them to just focus on, you know, their individual journey and and kind of keep all the pressures of the external stuff out and, and sort of focus on the signal versus the noise. Like, how do you help people through that? Yeah, I, that's absolutely a hard one because especially we're in the midst of it right now, um, mm-hmm. especially in California with um, with tech, as you mentioned. And I think the important part is to look at your superpowers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I call it superpowers only because there's always a list of pros and cons. There's always something that is uh, maybe a certain privilege or a certain benefit. And there's always going to be challenges. So obviously the challenges now is if you're getting laid off and, you know, things like that. And, you know, in generally, in general, like there's things about California that I'm very jealous of. I'm jealous Mm -hmm. of the good weather. I'm jealous of the high income that some people have. But you got the downside of, of, Mm -hmm. of housing, you know, as you mentioned. So the best thing to do is to try to look at the things that are to your advantage and focus on those as much as you can. For instance, if you're making a very high salary, but you know it can be, you know, jobs can be volatile, they can come and go, especially, you know, if there's, you know, vent, uh, new startups, you know, things like that. So knowing that, again, thinking about the worst case scenario, if you love California, but you've got this great tech job, in the moments that it's good, what can you do to try to pre- prepare for the worst case scenario? Mm-hmm. Now, for some people, that's okay, I'm going to have a supercharged, you know, um, emergency fund or, or, or a super supercharged uh, seeking fund. So if I get laid off, you know, and I'm laid off for six months, I'm still going to be okay. It may take a while to get there. Other people's plan might be, you know what, I've always wanted to move out of California. So mm-hmm. if this happens, then I think I'm going to move. I have family over in, you know, I don't know, Georgia or somewhere. So that is a point where you kind of have to do some self-reflection. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, most people I know, like you, they absolutely love California. So they find a way to make it work. Now, where I live, it's a low cost of living area. That's good. However, um, the incomes are not very good at all. If people want to make big salaries, they know they need to go to California or New mm. York. So I, but, so I can't focus on the fact that I'm not making that much money here, but I could either do something about it, or I can work on the pieces I am strong at, like being in a low cost of living Mm -hmm. area, you know, Mm -hmm. that can kind of help me get ahead. So it does take some reflection on, you know, everything can't be bad all at once, Mm -hmm. but I can look at the things that I know are strengths of mine, you know, Mm -hmm. where I live, where I don't live, because, you know, you're mentioning like the, the tech companies, you know, I live here in Ohio and between Ohio and Michigan, uh, you know, 20 years ago, it was the car manufacturers. Yeah, and so many people, especially 2008, so many people lost their job. There were, when I would go to the airport, there was this GM truck manufacturer and, and I would pass there and they would have all these brand new shiny SUVs right after the assembly line, lined up. And after 2008, that plant closed down. Mm. There were thousands of people out of work. And then the residual uh, you know, companies that got impacted, like the parts makers and things like that. It was pretty depressing for a while. And so those bad things will happen. And you know what? 
10 or 20 years from now, there, there will be something else. So it's a good moment to reflect and think about your strengths. What are your superpowers? Work on those. And the things that you know are sort of weaknesses, how are you going to handle them when they're tested? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the, And I've seen a couple of things where you've talked about your superpowers. Like, I really love that as an approach and a mindset. And then I love the prepare for the worst because, you know, I think oftentimes in, 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 in the Bay area too, we always, everything is always up and to the right. That's kind of how we think about things, right? It's everything's going to be successful always in reality. It's not. Um, and you, you, you highlighted that idea that if you can prepare for the worst, or at least have that in your, your planning, that, that can be really helpful. A little bit of a scarcity mindset probably is, is a good thing as we're thinking about our own personal finances and money. Um, so I, I love the way you've approached that. Um, well, you know, we are recording this pod during Women's History Month, and while you speak to everybody in 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 what you teach and your storytelling, you you also have some specific messages for women relative to money and personal finance. And and I would love for you to share some of those messages and some of that advice that you might give specific to women, uh, you know, as it relates to money and personal finance. Yeah. So to my sisters, I have made plenty of mistakes, and one of the things have a lot to do with um, women and money and how I realized that at the time of my divorce. Um, I was around mid-30s when I got divorced and, you know, it's already emotionally draining if, you know, anyone's been through a divorce or knows someone that has. But one of the things that stuck with me that was part of my journey of learning about finances was that my husband and I, we made similar salaries, you know, got a similar company match. But, you know, when they split the assets, you look at all of that. Prior to that, I had not. And that's my fault. Mm-hmm. So I had $20,000 in my 401k. I'm in my mid-30s. and I'm thinking, oh, I think that's pretty good. But then my husband had $120,000 mm-hmm. in his 401k. And it was, I felt so financially ignorant at that moment. And so that was part of my motivation to never, ever feel that way again. And so in a broad sense, and I, I, I love to dig into the numbers and look at research around the disparity of you know, men and women. And, and most women know that we've got the, um, we've got the salary gap, the income mm-hmm. gap. Women uh, generally make less than men or on average, I think the number is like 83% is is the percent of what we make versus a man. But on top of that, that means that we're saving less for retirement. Mm-hmm. And then that means that the social security that you get is based on your income. So guess what? You're going to have less in social security. And then guess what the other piece is? Women live longer than men. So we have a longer retirement to even fund. So I say all that to say, that we are behind, but it doesn't have to stay that way. Mm-hmm. And there's no shortage of information these days, but we have to look for good information, things that are going to, um, you know, be sort of independent, you know, um, do a little research. Um, that's why I love to teach because the mas- messenger does matter. So I talk a lot about how we break these 
complicated concepts down. Investing is a big one. So many women are, you know, risk averse. They feel like they have a very low risk tolerance and they're afraid of the stock market just like I was. So I love breaking it down and not talking down to women mm -hmm. because women are uh, very, very smart. So I like to keep it simple. I love for women to be curious. How do I learn about these things? And then find the right messenger all the way down to how do you like to, how do you best learn? Is it audio? Is it video? Is it a book? And once you do that, find a voice. And a lot of times you may resonate better with a woman that's explaining it. And that's where I found is a big difference uh, in the financial planning world. Overwhelmingly men and the way they explain things or the services that they provide, they may not be, you know, the way in which a woman learns the best. Mm -hmm. But with technology and the way the world has changed, there's so much out there. Find the voice that resonates with you because most of these concepts, when you break them down, they can be very approachable and you only need to take little steps at a time. You don't have to know it all at once. But because of the disparities that I mentioned, it is even more critical that we as women start to learn this stuff and kind of start our own journey to financial independence. Yeah. Is there, you know, you mentioned a lot of good nuggets in there on what to do. Is there a good starting place? But, you know, I think of like, I've got a 34 year old daughter and by the way, she's going to get a copy of this podcast for sure. But, <laughs> you know, is there a good place to start that, that journey? If somebody uh, is kind of at the very beginning or that it's just, they just don't know where to go. Yeah. I think um, the women of Cornet is a great starting place. Mm -hmm. um, I'll mention what, I started with um, to get more comfortable with the stock market was a nonprofit organization called Better Investing. Mm -hmm. A lot of organizations, um, well, nonprofit was very important to me. I was trying to seek out independent sources, but I, you know, I love the idea of starting with the thing you're most curious about and then putting in you know, a search, you know, just do a simple Google search or maybe what's the big thing now? Uh, chat GPT. Chat GPT. Yeah. 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 But yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, start, you got to start somewhere. So start yeah. there and, and also be mindful of how you learn the best. For me, when I was just starting out, a lot of people recommend this book or that book. I really don't like to read like that. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of a turnoff. And when I finally realized, you know what? I actually love podcasts. You know, that's why I'm on this podcast with you. Uh, I started in my Apple podcast platform and started searching there. There's a lot of women-oriented organizations that, you know, specifically focus on the needs and the learning from a woman's perspective. So, so those are just some ways to start. Make sure you are starting in a way that's most valuable to you and the best way that you learn. Yeah, I love that. And I think, I mean, you have to start. So that's the first thing. And then I love kind of directionally where you, where you could send people with that. I think that's great and really great advice. Um, I, you know, I kind of feel like I can ask you another hour's worth of questions. <laughs> um, but let me do it this way. What, what didn't I ask you or what didn't we touch on that you, you think we should, you know, make sure listeners hear from you? Well, I think the main thing is, is with women especially is 
make sure, you know, even if you're dealing with professionals, let's say you decide you don't really want to spend a lot of time on some of this financial stuff. Mm -hmm. If you end up using a professional, you should still feel respected Mm -hmm. and you should still feel uh, like, you know, this person is really wanting to educate and to help you and to hold your hand. A lot of times uh, women don't get involved when it comes to some of the, you know, investing and other financial decisions. And let's say if the worst happens, uh, you you get divorced or, you know, your, your spouse passes away. A lot of times those are the first, that's the first time that a woman gets to talk to a professional and you need to make sure that you're being treated in a way that is respectful and that is encouraging your learning process and to get you through what you need to get through. But definitely, I just want to reiterate, um, you know, do your research. There's no shortage of information and education that is out there. And start looking for uh, voices that resonate with you. Look for places that are objective, that's not, not you know, biased uh, or leaning towards one way or another. And just do a little bit at a time. I love that. I, I'm a big fan of of uh, Atomic Habits. I don't know if you're familiar with James. Clay, yeah. Just this yes, idea, I am. Right. It's <laughs> a so little bit at a time. Like you talk about yeah. compounding too, right? A little bit at a time creates big change, right. big, big opportunities. So so Jackie, tell me what's in the pipeline for you? What are you working on? Any Anything to, to fill us in on here that we should be keeping our eye out for? Yeah, well, these days, what I'm focusing on a lot is working with organizations, working with employers to help educate their employees or their staff. I've even worked with some government agencies. And not only do I come in one time, but I really love doing um, multiple visits, multiple workshops on the important topics, like things that come up the most is probably things like student loans, things like that, things like understanding your 401k or your 403b. So I kind of identified the main areas that people have questions about, where they want to learn more about. And I provide that through their employer. So I do believe that financial education belongs in the workplace. And that's where I feel like I can have an impact. So that's kind of where I'm focusing right now. I love that. Um, well, if, if people want to connect with you, if they want to learn from you, or maybe they want to have you come speak at their event, you know, what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you and uh, and to you know sort of learn more about you? Yes, I'd love to connect. Um, probably the best place I've put everything in one place uh, because there's so many different social media platforms and things like that. But it's just I have a link tree and it's just forward slash money letters. And that will uh, list and, and kind of show you all the other things that I've done. It has all of my contact information and a way that you can you know, contact me if you'd like for me to come to your organization, work with your group um, and so forth. So I would love to connect. Awesome. And and we'll make sure that's in the show notes and, and we'll link there. And then there's a couple other things I'd love to, to drop in the show notes that are, is pretty prominent that shows your work. So, well, you know, Jackie, I just want to thank you for being on CoreCast, for being back again with, with Cornet Northern California. I learned a ton from you, even prepping for our session, I just, I feel like I learned a ton and, and I hope we can have you back again, have you, you know, bring your wisdom back to Cornette and, uh, and just be a friend of the, of the chapter going forward. 
Yeah, so great talking to you and so great to be working with uh, Cornette. So this was wonderful. Awesome. Well, so great to see you and thanks again for being here. Yeah, thanks, Robert. That was a pretty awesome conversation. I just love Jackie. I love her energy. I love the body of work that she's been able to develop. I love her journey to get there. Uh, just so inspirational and so helpful. I mean, she talks about things that are really important and really relevant to all of us. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jackie as much as I did. And thank you to all our listeners. You're the reason we do this pod. It's in service to you, our chapter members, our sponsors, all those that participate in the Northern California chapter. We ask that you please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues, and please post it and about it on your social media. It's a great way to spread the word about what we're doing on this pod, to spread the value that we bring across the Northern California chapter, and to really just raise the awareness of the great work that you all do uh, within the Northern California chapter. You can find links to all our past episodes on the Cornet Northern California chapter website, and you can subscribe to hear our future episodes on iTunes or anywhere you get your pods. And if you have an idea for an upcoming episode, we would love to hear from you. Our contact information is in the show notes, and please don't hesitate to drop us an idea or a thought or a suggestion. That's it for this episode, episode one of season seven of CoreCast. This is Robert Teed signing off, and until next time, work well and be well.